I invite you to take your Bible, or if you would like to reach for one under the pew in front of you, or just listen. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25, page 1429 in the Pew Bible. Last, no, two weeks ago, we worked our way through the previous verses and saw that we are to draw near to God in full assurance of faith and to have our consciences cleansed by the blood of Christ. And now we come to some very practical admonitions. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, I ask that these three verses of your word would have a life-changing impact upon your people. And if any is here this morning without Christ, who does not have the Spirit of Christ, who does not belong to Him, who does not have the Spirit within, bearing witness with their spirit that they are the children of God, who are not led by the Spirit, I pray that the Spirit would so move in power as to open the eyes to the truth of your word and to win people into faith and hope in Christ. Lord, would you establish us in this great text, in the hope of it, in the love of it, in the encouragement of it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by asking you, what you are making of your life. What are you doing with it? Your life is not your own. It's a trust. God made you. He put you on the earth for, some of you, maybe for 30 years only. Some 50, some 70, some 85, a very few, 90. Your life is not your own. It's a trust. God gave it to you. The question then is, what are you doing with it? When you get up in the morning and you face the day, what goes through your mind about what shall I make of this day? What does my life count for? What do I hope to have achieved by the end of the day such that I can say it made a difference in the way that it should make a difference? That's my question as we begin. And some of you might say, there's certain personality types as well as spiritual conditions that talk this way, you might say, I don't even think that way. I just get up and go. I, I don't ask those kinds of questions. I, I just do what needs to be done. I eat and then I put on my clothes and I go to school or I go to the job and I don't ask that big mega question about What's this day supposed to mean? 
If you don't think that way or ask that question, my prayer for you now as I'm preaching and earlier this morning and yesterday as I was working on this is that God would use this word to create in you a new orientation on life because God did not put you here to drift or to be dictated to by circumstances alone. Aimlessness is akin to lifelessness. I rake leaves for about four hours Thursday afternoon. Leaves and grass and stuff. And so I've been thinking about leaves for two or three days. Now leaves that are on the ground are all dead. But they sure move a lot. They move more than the dog. They move more than Talitha. She's happy to sit in the swing for almost that whole time. Back and forth. These leaves, they're all over the place. And they're dead. Full of motion. And empty of life. God did not create you to be that way. Full of motion. Get up and do what dictates out there to be done. No aim, no aim, no focus. Don't be like a leaf. God did not create you to be a dead leaf in the backyard of the world. Moving a lot and having no aim whatsoever. God created you to be unlike a leaf. Indeed, unlike a dog. My dog has pretty specific aims. She knows what she wants. She only wants a few things. She wants to play or she wants to eat or she wants to sleep. That's all. God created you to have an aim beyond that. And this text is about that. And, and before we get to it, that is not burdensome. Some of you are wired to feel, oh no, here it comes. Gonna give me a thing to do. I got enough to do. I don't need another thing to do. This is not a burdensome thing I'm talking about because when you find what you were meant to do and then do it with all of God's might, you do come to the end of the day often feeling tired and ready to rest but your heart is saying yes to life. Yes, that's what it's for. Instead of that kind of malaise that comes over life where you're always tired and you don't give a rip about anything because nothing seems worth doing anymore. When you find what you were made to do and to be and then you do it with all the energy that God inspires within you, it is not depleting it's energizing. And one of the places I get that idea is not only from my experience, but from Jesus' words where he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Isn't that a strange thing? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his purpose. What does that mean? It means I eat purpose. I feed on purposefulness. 
and he was man. You feed on meaningful, purposeful activity for which you were designed. And when you eat it, you are strengthened, not spent. Even though you come to the end of the day and you know it is time for rest. Because we're all made like little children to go unconscious, unconscious, lest we presume to be God. I think that's why God designed sleep. I'm not sure, but it's a great theological problem for me why he should design such creatures to go unconscious a third of their lives. But I think it's because we would presume to be indomitable if we didn't have to be childlike about eight hours a day. God created you to be purposeful and to eat that purpose, to feed on that purpose, to be strengthened by that purpose. So I plead with you, when you get up tomorrow morning, remember this text, remember it, and focus your day and aim your day. Don't let it be like... I wrote to my son, Karsten, a while back. We were talking about poetry and art. And I said, isn't it true that... It's banks that create a river, not just water. Banks create a river. Hold it in. Give it direction. Minus banks, what do you get? Ohio. You get get a flood that seems to be aimless. It just messes up everything. But you put banks around your your focus and you say, all right, I'm not here for everything. I'm not just out there dribbling my life all over everybody. I have a reason to get out of bed today and this is it. Okay, enough introduction text. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So he begins this little three-verse unit by calling us to hope in God. Now, this isn't something you need to get out of bed to do. So this is not the main point of the text, or what I'm aiming at in this text. This is preliminary heart work. You do this still in bed. In fact, it'd be good to do it while you're still in bed, unless you tend to fall back to sleep if you stay in bed. So get out and get on your knees if you need to. But this is not going to the kitchen, going to the study, going to work, going to school to do anything. This is heart work, namely embrace with the arms of your heart hope. Hug it, love it, kiss it, squeeze it, hold it. And let the strength of your arms be the promise. He who promised is faithful. He squeezed you, he squeezed you. As you hold on to your promise and your hope, God keeps his promise. And what has he promised us? I mean, this is not a sermon on that promise. But we got to put some concrete stuff on the table here, lest we're just talking in the void. Let's just stay with Hebrews. Let's remember a few promises. Here's the ones that came to my mind as I was just thinking, what have I talked about and what do I know from the book of Hebrews about the promises of God? Number one, he promises that he will write his law on our hearts and put his word in our minds and cause us to walk in the statute, chapter 10, verse 16. He promised us 
that he would work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Chapter 13, verse 22. He promised us that he would remember our sins no more. Chapter 10, verse 17. He promised us that he would never leave us or forsake us. Chapter 13, verse 5. And he promised us that he would, by a single sacrifice, perfect us for all time. Chapter 10, verse 14. And perhaps for some of you, the most precious of all would be something like this. He promised that he would take every pain in his children's life and turn it for their good. Chapter 12, verse 10. So we got promises all over the place in our faith. This is our faith. And verse 23 says, hug it. Hold it. Don't treat it lightly. Before you get out of bed in the morning, hug the hope. Know that God has loved you. Know that He sacrificed Christ for you. Know that He sideth with you. And get that thing taken care of first. Okay? That's why it comes first in the text, I think. And that's why we should get it taken care of first in the morning. However, God did not create you to wake up, hope in Him, and then curl up under the covers and go back to sleep all day. If you did that, you know what would happen? Hope in God and His trustworthiness would become invisible to the world. You can feel all you want inside your heart, and if it doesn't make anything visible, the glory of God is silenced. Hope has to become expressive in some way, and God has designed ways in which hope naturally becomes expressive. So that takes us now to verse 24. This is the way that hope becomes visible. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, this is what I want you to get focused on tomorrow morning when you get up. Okay, you wake up, your first thought is, I feel rotten because of how I talked to my roommate, wife, son, daughter, friend yesterday. I am so crummy. First thought. Second thought, thank you, Jesus, for dying for crummy people like me. Would you please forgive me for that? I love you and I'm so sad that I blow it again and again. But I now afresh receive your cleansing forgiveness and I take my stand in grace and I embrace my hope that you have freely offered to me in Jesus and I'm going to enter this day confident that you are on my side. Right, that's, that's the second thing you do after feeling crummy. Now what? The next thing I want you to do tomorrow morning is say, Lord, Pastor John said yesterday from verse 24 in Hebrews 10 that the reason I'm on this planet 
is to help stir up other people to love and good deeds. So I'm going to start thinking about this. I know so-and-so, and I could call them, and here's this person at work, and, and your mind just starts to engage the reason you're on the earth. Verse 24 is why you're here, folks. You are here to stimulate other people to love. That's why you're here. Now, be careful. I, I was on the phone with Ben last yesterday afternoon down in Georgia, my son Ben. He stayed on the phone another hour and a half after I got off talking to his little brother, Abraham. Cost us 12 bucks, I figure, or so. I would have paid triple that for what was happening on that phone. But he was talking about this whole issue of uh, when you get mad at somebody, you, you basically feel it's, it's all their problem. It's the wife's problem, it's the kid's problem, it's the teenager's problem. And you get into a mode of saying, you need to get fixed. If you get fixed, things would work around here. And he was saying, he's learning by some reading he's doing, praying, tapes he's listening to, that when he gets angry, it's his problem too. And maybe mainly. Now, I had that ringing in my ears as I was reworking this text. So I want to be careful here. This text could really lead to some... I, I exist to get you fixed, Herb. That's what the text says. Piper... So live as to get her fixed. Bad paraphrase. It's missing one little piece here. One another. There's a reciprocity in that phrase. Each other. Stimulate each other. In that word is this consciousness. Piper, your pastor, one of your jobs is to stir people up to love and good deeds and to stir people up to stir people up to love and good deeds. But if you don't see the one another, if you don't recognize that you must avail yourself of your staff and your people to stir you up to love and good deeds, you're going to bomb this ministry. You are not self-sufficient. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Others don't depend on that stimulation while you don't depend on it. Did I say that right? What, you know what I mean. I depend on you and the staff especially, those who are close around me, my little small group, to stimulate and stir me up. Like Remco, bless your heart, while we were listening to that music, put his arm around me just before I stood up here and prayed for me. That's just a warning not to abuse verse 24 in a kind of unidirection instead of bidirection. But here's, there's something specific in this verse I want us to see in the word consider and its direct object. Pardon the grammar this morning. Got to give you a little grammar exercise here. This verb consider is used one other time in the book of Hebrews, namely chapter 3 verse 1, where it says consider Jesus. Same word is right here in verse 24. Let us consider Consider Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Consider Jesus. Jesus is the direct object of the verb. 
It means, look at Jesus. Think about Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Rivet your attention on Jesus. That's what consider Jesus means. Okay, now come back to verse 24. Now, the, the Greek here, in its word order, is impossible to bring over into good English. And that's the case with most languages. But I wish it could be because it goes like this. It, it says real, woodenly, literally, lousy English. Consider one another unto provoking of love and good deeds. The direct object of the word consider is one another. Now this is important for getting out of bed tomorrow morning and knowing what you're here for. Because what it says is this. After you've got your heart, according to verse 23, filled and strengthened with hope because God is faithful to His promises to you. Then the next step is study people. See, now that doesn't come through in the English. When it says, let us consider how to stir one another up, it's there, it's there, you can hear it, but it's there even more clearly when it says, let us consider one another to the end that they get stirred up unto love. The focus of considering is people. Christians are to be people studiers, people watchers, people meditators. So we got, so far in this text, we got two focuses, right? Verse 23 says, first of all, get your heart full of hope in God. Hope in God. Next, start looking at people and figuring out what it is about them that would help you help them love others. This is an awesome reason to live. It is so full of challenge to your creativity, to your thought, to your heart, to become the kind of person who knows other people. Now, you've got to be a little bit mature in this. This is a test of whether you're mature or mentally uh, ill. Because the mark of immaturity and mental illness... It's just a matter of degree whether we're sick or not. I mean, everybody's sick a little bit. That's what Jesus said. He only came to fix sick people. Um, the, the, the difference between sick or immature people and healthy, mature people is other-orientedness. Other-directedness. Sick people are always talking about themselves, always thinking about themselves. You know, psychosis is the worst example of that kind of sickness, and they're totally wrapped up, even in a dream world that makes no sense to anybody but themselves. But it's the the lesser cases are also that way. A little bit of immaturity means, did I wear the right tie today? Or they've all left. I was going to apologize to them publicly. All my horn blowers are gone. I, I totally skipped their special number in the first service. I walked to the communion table, and they didn't get to play it. Now, I heard that between the services. Tom Steller, bless his heart, saved me from doing it again. And I feel awful. 
I'm going to think about this all afternoon. But if I think about it to the point where it incapacitates me, I'm a really sick person. I need too much approval. I need to be too perfect. Right? There are a lot of people like that. Who they make a mistake, like I made in the first service, or wear the wrong thing, or pull my hair the wrong way, or weigh a little bit too much, or always thinking about, no, me. That's immature. This text is calling for full people and not full of self. You know, there's a lot of churches that would preach on this text, I think, and say, verse 24 doesn't have anything to do with God necessarily. It's just stir each other up to love and good works. So I read the newspaper yesterday, and one of them, I think I wrote it down, but I don't know where it is in my notes here. I forget where I wrote it. Um, One church was described, it said something, I get to paraphrase. uh, They talk about missionaries being sent, but as far as I could tell, this church exists to build the self-esteem of its members. Some of you read that. Now, that may be an inaccurate description of the church. But it does show you how the world thinks about verse 24. They say, oh, sure, sure, verse 24 is right. It's the right. Oh, that's what we should do. Live so that we stir up others to love and good works. I'm telling you, it does have something to do with God at both ends. At the giving end, how are you going to become the mature person who is so at peace that you can be other-oriented. So when you walk out of here today, you don't think, now if I talk to them, I'm, they may have been here 20 years already when I welcome them to church, and then I'll look like a fool, and so I think I'll just be quiet and walk to my car. I tell you, that's, that's immature. Don't worry if they've been here 20 years. They're not going to bite your head off. And if they bite your head off, it's okay, you recover. <laughs> In fact, you'll be... You'd be healthier with a new head, probably. (laughs) Or less head. Where are you going to get that? You're going to get it from verse 23. Hope in God, not self-esteem. Hope in God. He's there for you. We're all sinners. We're all imperfect. We all blow it in church and out of church. And our standing is not because of some manufactured self-esteem, but because God loves people who are crummy, like me, who blow it. That's the where I get the resources to go ahead and say, hi, I've never met you. At the other end of the verse, love and good deeds, that's all for the glory of God. Let your light so shine that men may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. So whatever anybody else might say, we say here, stirring people up to love is about God. It's about getting hope from God at the beginning. It's about the glory of God at the end. So study one another. How? Let's go to the last point here. How do you do this? Verse 24 leads to verse 25. Verse 25 gives the practical, not the only way, but the key way in this text is not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another. So you got two things. Don't neglect to meet together. And when you get there, when you get there, encourage each other. There's that mutuality again. Now, when I was growing up, Southern Baptist Church, and it isn't just the Southern Baptist Church, a lot of churches. In fact, the only way I ever heard this text preached on was, this is talking about Sunday morning. Sunday morning worship service. And it was used to get you back next week. So, it says, don't forget or neglect to assemble together and don't form the habit of watching TV on Sunday morning or golfing. Come to church. That's not a bad application of the text. But there's, a, there's just a little something skewed there. When you look at the second part of the verse, it says, The reason for coming together, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, is so that you can encourage one another. Now, I believe in preaching. I believe in it. I believe there's something about the Word of God and the Gospel that cries out to be heralded and trumpeted. That's what I'm doing right now. That's why I lift my voice. Heralded and trumpeted. Now, you can get together in a small group and you can discuss the meaning of the text, small voice, quiet. Well, does it mean this or does it mean that? And that's good. Texts demand that too. But it also demands heralding, trumpeting, exulting over. So this assembly and me doing what I'm doing right now it feels right. This is the gospel calls for that kind of engagement. But I got no illusions that a church can be healthy, whole New Testament church on preaching alone. Because this verse says that when you get together, and there are about 700 of you who only come to this service. I don't know what you do with the rest of your time, but not Sunday school and, and not Wednesday night, and, and I don't know about small groups. We in this service have a little bit of that in the aisles at the end and in the commons at the end and in the parking lot, a little bit of encouraging one another. But when I ask the Lord and this text, where does that happen at Bethlehem? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but when you get together, encourage one another. The answer to me very clearly is small groups, which is why this ministry is absolutely crucial in our church. There are a lot of reasons why it's crucial. Verse 25 is one of the biggest reasons that it's crucial, because Stirring one another up to love and good deeds, verse 24, happens, according to verse 25, in a togetherness where mutual encouragement goes back and forth. Now, there's a little phrase in this verse that might be where you are. So, orient yourself in verse 25 right now. There's two groups. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. Ooh, got a little bit. <clears throat> There's two groups. Those who get together to do this 
and those who habitually don't. Why does he use the word habit? Real simple. We're all creatures of habit. And what you don't do for a while, you habitually tend not to do. So there's dozens of you in this room, maybe hundreds, who through no particular ill will of your own, or no malice of your own, or no rebellious, I don't want to do what the Bible says, but rather drifting into habit, don't find yourself week by week in any kind of grouping where this happens. That's not healthy. And I'm pleading with you, change it. Now, I know I can't make you change it. Habits don't go that way. You know, if you've got a habit of getting up at this time or going to bed at this time or doing this or that, and I say to you this morning, don't do that anymore. You say, okay, that won't work. All I can do is say, do you agree with me that this is the sort of thing the Bible, God's Word, is beckoning you toward? And will you join with me in pondering that and praying over that, that God would work in your heart to release you from that habit of non-participation and give you the freedom and the blessing to go to David Livingston. This right here is on the back. It has, look at all those missionaries. Isn't that great? Oh, love it. And at the top are these enablers, these mobilizers, these equipper types, these pastors. And number three down says, Pastor for Cell Life and Adult Ministries, David Livingston. Cell life is not biology. It is small groups. David's job is to help you get connected or to help you create a connecting place. There are a lot of open small groups at Bethlehem and there's a need for a lot more. And God may, out of this message, lead you to one or encourage you to create one. And when you get together tonight, I would encourage all you small group leaders who are in this room, when you get together tonight in your small groups, start, unless it totally wrecks your plan, by saying, uh, how many of you were in church this morning? And hopefully everybody's hand will go up. <laughs> I'm dreaming. And the re- those who are there, you say to them, what difference should that make in our small group? Are we doing that? And look, I think this can happen in any kind of small group. I'm not on a crusade for you to shape your small group in any particular way, except to make sure this happens. So, for example, in the first service, Rick Gamash was sitting right over there where Faith's sitting, and I pointed to him and I said, now Rick's small group meets in my basement, and we have an apartment down there, and they live down there, and he meets down there, and they do Christian classics. Whew. So they're reading Jonathan Edwards' dissertation concerning the religious affections. And I said to Rick, I said, boom, in the first service. Now look, that's great. I would love a small group like that. Challenge your mind and get into some solid biblical theological stuff. But don't let this thing become so heady that this doesn't happen. In other words, talk about Edwards and the religious affections and the biblical foundations in such a practical way that you make sure you get to the point where you're saying things and doing things that others are stirred up to love others. Others are stirred up to love others. So I don't, I don't care what your subject matter is in the small groups, provided it's biblically oriented 
and this spiritual dynamic of stirring each other up to love through encouraging one another is happening. Which leaves one last question, and we're done. What sorts of things do you say to encourage somebody to become a lover? What sorts of things would you say to fulfill verse 25, which would fulfill verse 24? And I think the answer is verse 23. Say things that direct people whose hope is wavering or whose eyes are being blinded to hope say things that will help them hope in God. And the reason I say that is very simple. We have already seen the key to love is hope. The key to love is hope. You can't love others without hope in God. You will be depleted before the day is over. You won't have anything to offer if you are not drawing upon hope in God. Now let me close with just a practical illustration of this from nine verses later. If you want to drop your eyes down to verses 32 following. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible is this story of this church in its early days and how they loved each other. Let this be a description of your small group or an imaginary small group that you might be a part of. The situation in the early days, according to Hebrews 10.32 following, is that they had become Christians and there was persecution and some of them got thrown into jail and those who didn't get thrown into jail were forced with to deal with the question, what am I going to do? What are we going to do? Half our small group sitting in jail. And if we go to visit them, they'll know we're part of the Christian movement and they might throw us in jail or do something worse. In other words, are we going to go and help them love and be strong and have hope or are we going to just protect ourselves and sit here underground? And they went. Let's read it now in verse 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. So it it, it paid off in a real painful way to identify with the suffering church. Now, where did they get the courage to do that? That's my question. Where does love come from? Where does the will... So here you've got a small group tonight, all right? You come together and somebody's missing. Now, the easiest thing in the world would be to not even talk about it. Because there might be a problem, and if there's a problem, you might have to get involved. So just, she's not here. Don't talk about it. What I'm asking you right now is, what has to happen inside of you so that you have the resolve to talk about it. And not only that, to, to say, what are we going to do? And have some energy and some hope that something might be done later that night or tomorrow, all week long, or for the next three years. And the answer is given in the next phrase in this verse 34. You win and you showed sympathy to these prisoners and risked your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. That's hope in God. I have a better possession in heaven. It will abide. It will never let me down. God is my portion. 
His steadfast love is better than life. Of course we're going to go to the jail. Of course we're going to talk about her and her not being here. Of course we're going to do something about it. Because we've got God. And He's infinitely resourceful. And if it costs us something, so it costs us something. We lay our heads down at the end of the day and feel wonderful in His love. And if it costs us our life, as it might in some critical situations, then we die well and we die full. Let me sum it up. I'm done. Number one, let's get our hearts full of hope in God. Number two, out of that hope, let us study one another. Okay? If you're walking out of here in three minutes, you don't look at the floor out of self-concern. You look at people. You see the tears. You see the face. You know the face. That's not the face she usually has. You study her. You see his his bent over shoulders. You, that's not, there's something there. You study people. Why? So that there might be something you could do or say that would free them from whatever it is that's keeping them from loving other people. And thirdly, you do it with regular togetherness. Part of it here, part of it in the small groups, part of it at work, but mainly that small group thing. One last thing. And you do this more and more as you see the day approaching. What's that? The day is the day of God, the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return. Why? Why more and more? Why more small groups? Why more mutual exhortation? Why more love as the day approaches? The answer is Matthew 24, 12, where Jesus says, In the last days, because lawlessness is multiplied, the love of many will grow cold. As Christ approaches and the end of this age moves toward its end, Jesus painted it in both dark colors and bright colors. And the dark colors are terrible. The love of many will grow cold, which is why this writer says, don't get into the habit. You hear it? You feel it? Don't get into the habit of non-participation because you know what coals do when they move away from the fire. Let's pray. Father, so much is at stake in whether we hope in you and whether we help each other hope in you and whether we stir one another up by that encouragement to love others. The ripple effect here is so wonderful and yet habitual non-compliance is so deadly. I pray now as we leave that this would stick and that the Holy Spirit would water it. And that tomorrow morning, when we wake up, our day would not be aimless. But we would say, in the hope that you supply, who can I study today to see how to stir them up to love and good deeds? Lord, help us in this, I pray. 
If any of you would like to pray with me or any of the others, we'll be standing here at the front for a few minutes. God bless you as you go. Have a wonderful Lord's Day. Amen.